0: The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do greet thee this morning as the Savior of the world. We thank you, O Lord, that you sent your only begotten Son into the world to come under the law, to fulfill perfect obedience, to offer a sacrifice for sin. Grant us that reverence and humility, O Lord, this morning so that we may know your truth. For we know without uh, that posture, no truth can be known. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, this morning we continue our studies, as we're doing on Thursdays, from the Gospel of John. And I want to focus on a verse this morning, verse 29, uh, from the prologue, or immediately following the prologue. well-known verse where John uh, announces, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in order to read that in context, why don't we pick up at verse 19 and I'll read through verse 29 This is God's very word. Please give careful attention to it and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him Who are you and he confessed and did not deny but confessed. I'm not the Christ and they asked him. What then? Are you Elijah? He said I am not Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor a prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the reading of God's word. In these earliest sections of the Gospel of John, here we have this grand proclamation, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, If John is influenced uh, by the Semitic languages, which I think he is, uh, then this particle he uses and the backdrop for it, as far as behold, is very significant. He's announcing something that's newsworthy. And he wants people to get up on his frame of reference, if you will, and see what newsworthy pronouncement he is making. Notice John's emphasis on seeing here. And of course, if you've been reading in John, or if you read in John in the future, you will know that the whole theme of seeing, in contrast to not seeing, is quite pronounced for John. So here he is. He says, behold, listen to just a few verses. 114, we beheld his glory. 129 and 36. Behold the Lamb of God. Come and see. 150 and following. You shall see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Chapter 6, verse 40. Everyone that beholdeth the Son. 1221, Sir, we would see Jesus. 149. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. 1419, the world beholdeth me no more, but ye behold me. 1616, a little while, and you behold me no more, and you shall see me. 1724, that they may behold my glory. And finally, 1935, he that hath seen hath testified. Now, as one writer says, John the Baptist, at this point, When he alerts you and grabs your attention and says, Behold the Lamb of God who bears away the sins of the world. He says, becomes, quote, the personification of the witness of the entire Old Testament. Close quote. So before we launch into asking what John is talking about or what the elusive reference is there for the Lamb of God... I think it's worth thinking about personification for a moment. And especially in the light of John's interest in getting you to see what he's trying to express, similarly as Professor Johnson did the other day. You are here for a reason, many reasons, to gain skills, gain ability, to rightly divide the word of God's truth, but also to see Jesus, to know him more clearly. And more intimately to become more cordially attached to him. So let me ask what is the uh, function of personification in the Old Testament? There's many definitions and if you decide to come here someday we'll spend a lot of time on this because it's a very powerful literary device that especially uh, writers in the Old Testament use. One definition is a manner of speech endowing things with life and that fits pretty well here if we follow the notion that John stands here as the personification of the entire Old Testament. But what about the functions of personification? How does personification work if we agree in some sense that John the Baptist is functioning as a personification of the entire Old Testament? Well, personification makes generalizations from the multiplicities of human experience. Let me explain. If we're talking about Lady Wisdom, as we'll be doing in Psalms and Wisdom's uh, course in a few weeks or maybe even sooner, Lady Wisdom is a figure, a personified uh, figure of speech, that collects a whole bunch of individual data about wisdom that the writer wants to communicate to his hearers. You see, as human beings, most of us, the great majority of us in the room, save a few, cannot hold together all the particulars to which we're exposed. Perhaps you're feeling that way, especially at the beginning of the semester as you look at the workload and the reading load of what's expected uh, for you. So one thing that the literary device of personification does is it groups all those particulars under a kind of general heading, or in the case of Lady Wisdom, for example, under one person, Lady Wisdom. Or in this case, perhaps it's John the Baptist, who collectively represents in his personified voice, if you will, the entirety of Old Testament particulars. Have you ever heard children pray when they're just learning how to pray? And parents make the mistake at the dinner table of asking the young child to pray, and they thank God for the rice and the meat and for mom and dad and for the pet. And what are they doing? They've not learned to group all those particulars under one universal concept. And uh, prayers can be more long winded than their uh, pastor or ordained father at that point. So you understand the function I'm trying to get across, and without going into detail, because we don't have time to do this, personification serves another function as well. You see, it helps us think about universals. It helps us think about many particulars in an abstract concept and group those all together at once. It's a very, very powerful literary device that's used throughout Scripture in the New as well as the Old Testament. The righteousness of faith says, for example, Paul's powerful literary device at one of the most poignant uh, parts of the New Testament where he wants to get across the gospel. But first, before we explore this personification of the Old Testament in the figure of the Lamb and John, let me situate this passage in its context. I want to ask the question, what would the ancient audience have thought? What would have been evoked in their minds and in their feelings and in their emotions when they read this passage or heard this passage pronounced when they heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God who carries away the sins of the world. You notice that John the Baptist identifies his own ministry in the context of the book of Isaiah, a very important part of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3 and following as it is so often evoked in the beginning of the Gospels. And there John the Baptist, in answer to the question, well, who are you then if you're not a prophet? Well, I am the one, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, to invoke the wilderness, to invoke Isaiah at this point, to invoke the way in the wilderness, what would that have done for this original audience at this particular time? You know from scripture that often the concept of wilderness has to do with murmurings, with grumblings in the wilderness, but not so in this case. Wilderness at this point, and especially in Isaiah, had very positive connotations. And what John is doing in evoking Isaiah from this point is saying there is going to be a new exodus. Because if we had time and we looked at Isaiah 40 all the way through 55 and all the way up into the end of the book, The entire book takes a positive turn to say there's something new, there's something magnificent, there's something great that's going to happen. And it's going to happen in the person of the evid Yahweh, the servant of the Lord who's going to come, and that evid Yahweh is going to be a second Moses. And just like the exodus was a great deliverance in the past, so too there's going to be a great deliverance in the future. But it's going to far outstrip any former deliverance, even as grand and magnificent as that was this is what they would have thought this is what was being fought in circles round about them we know at Qumran with a community that had settled there to go into the wilderness at this point was actually to anticipate that you are the true Israel some new special revelatory event is going to happen in the wilderness and we know that this was motivating them. Isaiah 43 became a prominent leitmotif in the Qumran material in the community there. We also know from Josephus that certain writings that came out at this time established that there were monastic like communities like unto Qumran that were expecting a Messiah to come in the wilderness to be a second Moses to lead the people out who had experienced exile, who had Nowhere approximated the former glories of Israel before, and so they're anticipating, waiting for all the luminescence of that grand prophetic hope to be realized, to be concretized in this period when they're conquered by the Romans and expecting something uh, to come, someone to come and deliver them. That's what they would have heard. That's what they would have expected. There's anticipation. There would have been evocation. There would have been a kind of energized response on their part to hear the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pronounced by the person who comes leveling the road, pronouncing the way the new exodus is going to happen. What's he talking about? What's going to happen? Well, there will be a great future event that is going to happen and here the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, as Professor Johnson uh, told us. And so Jesus is being announced as the new Moses, the one who will bring the new Exodus, that will far outstrip the old Exodus. But now I want to focus on what would the audience have thought about Jesus referring, being referred to by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world." Now John has his own style and form of typology. He's very subtle and he's very oblique, but most definitely he is picking up all kinds of Old Testament themes and he's imbuing his gospel with it in order to communicate the grand message that he has that flows out of this prologue and what follows. And I want to suggest to you that there are two strands that we can firmly suggest are being alluded to here with regards to the Old Testament. There's more, uh, but we don't have the time in order to justify uh, all those elusive strands that are being referred to, so we'll pick up two. When John says, behold the Lamb of God, who carries away the sins of the world, we want to ask, what would they have thought when they heard the Lamb of God? And moreover, what would they have thought with the qualifying phrase that's attached to that? Who carries away this into the world? Many things for sure. But first and foremost, they would have thought of the Passover. And secondly, they would have thought of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, verse 12. Why is that so? Well, the Gospel of John presents Jesus' death as nothing less than a Passover death. In the days of the Exodus, the Paschal Lamb was killed between the two evenings. Exodus 29, verse 38 through 46. It is true that our Lord indicates in many other passages, and the apostles do, that Jesus is the true Paschal Lamb. Think of 1 Corinthians 5:7. He is our Passover, John 19:36. This passage, 1 Peter 1:19, 1, and the book of Revelation, chapter 5, 6, and 12:11. But we need to ask the question with reference to this correspondence between Jesus as the Lamb of God, evoking all the notions associated presently with Jesus as the Paschal Lamb. How is this illusion actualized in the minds and hearts and feelings of those who would have heard it? Well, the point is simple. Just as the blood of the first lamb sprinkled upon the lentils of their houses turned away the angel of death, John is announcing, now comes the true, the true Paschal Lamb who will turn away the wrath of God through his propitiating act, through his life, his act of obedience, his passive obedience, his death, his resurrection, God's wrath will be turned away. But notice what he goes on to say. This is the Lamb who bears away the sin of the world. So secondly, we see they would have thought of the suffering servant of Isaiah. John the Baptist had already identified his mission against Isaiah's prophecy. It defined his mission. It explained and empowered his ministry. But to understand this phrase, you need to understand an idiom that probably influences this coming out of the Old Testament. To bear sin away is attached with a particular Hebrew phrase having to do with bear sins upon one's shoulders or one body. And then to bear that either as one who is guilty of uncleanness or one who is guilty by virtue of sin and therefore has guilt, that, in an Old Testament mindset, is a weight upon his shoulders. He bears that until it's borne away. It's very concrete. It weighs upon him. It presses upon his body and upon his back. But then notice the one who bears sin away also bears that sin and takes away that burden. That's what these people would have thought. Especially the Jews who were present who would have heard this. Oh, a Lamb of God is coming. A Lamb of God is coming who indeed will bear our sin. Behold the Lamb of God who carries away the sin of the world. One who will take that sin that weighs us down, that dark cloud that hangs over it, and he will take it away. He will make us clean again. He will make us in such a posture that we can be presentable to an all-holy, thrice-holy God. Listen, if you doubt, just to some of the language where this comes up, especially poignantly, in the servant songs, Isaiah 53. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Skipping on to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The Lamb of God will do this. This word for lamb occurs only two other places. In the New Testament scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, where the Paschal Lamb is directly alluded to. And also in Acts chapter 8:32, where Christ is referred to as the suffering servant. And it quotes Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. Amnos, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Acts 8:32, like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers. Is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Remember that occurs in the context where Philip is explaining to the Ethiopian eunuch Do you understand what you're reading? Do you see (laughs) what you're reading? About whom you are reading? Have you seen yet? Let me help you see. Let me explain. So, what are we to conclude from this very, albeit Way too brief exposition of John the Baptizer's identification of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The personification, if you will, of the entire Old Testament. Well, these are the things that I want to bring to bear on you as you think about this passage and how you might apply it to yourself. After all, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him, namely Jesus Christ. So the first thing is, what then shall we preach or teach with regards to the Lamb of God? Christ of the Old and Christ of the New Testament, the entire personification of the Old Testament. You must not shirk from your duty to teach Christ. We would hear Jesus and none other. If you go to teach and explain the Old Testament and you do not show them Jesus, you have been derelict in your duty. If you follow the exegesis that I've laid out here. Let us not shirk from that great responsibility. Secondly, this is extraordinarily practical and we should in no way shirk from our duty to preach Christ and him crucified throughout the whole Old Testament because one who is greater than Moses has come. And think about what this means when you come to people who are weighed down by the burden of sin. When you preach and teach Christ from the Old Testament. You are bringing the good news of the gospel such as you are saying, if you are shouldered and pressed down by sin, a disquieting sin, a habitual sin, a constant condition from which you cannot extricate yourself. There is good news. Namely, we preach Christ crucified and he came to bear away the sin of the world to wipe away the dark cloud that hangs over us. When you get in the pastorate, God willing, for those of you who do, there will be times when you will be dealing with cases and people that are entrapped in sin. Without sounding mystical, (laughs) there is a fog in the room that you can feel, and it's oppressive. And you're bringing the word to break through the chains of Satan. And the tyranny of the devil. And there's ministers in the room that are shaking their heads saying, I know what you mean because they've been there in the trenches and they've seen it. People of God, men and women, we're about serious matters here. When you gain the skill set, or as Professor Johnson exhorted you to do last week, when you come here to know Jesus more and you take that life-giving word out there into the trenches and into the churches and outside the churches, even into foreign lands where there is no gospel, as some of you in the room do, you come with a powerful word that is meant to slay sins and to lift people out of their darkness and deliver them from that bondage. Therefore, perform all your studies well. As Professor Warfield would say, Do all your studies with a religious view in mind. And as he would go on to say, when you study a Hebrew or Greek word used in scripture, recognize that God has given that particular word for the saving health of men, women, and children. And all your other studies as well. Philosophy, theology, church history, systematics, biblical theology, practical theology. You're preparing to make known the Lamb of God who bears away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for your word. It is broader than all the heavens. We thank you, O Lord, that you express yourself in so many different forms and in so many different ways in the scriptures. Thank you for this word as pronounced by John and the tremendous evocative um, response that it elicits from your people. Father, uh, help us never forget uh, the grand and glorious, adventurous task that we are about. Give us grace, O Lord, that we may perform our duties, albeit imperfectly and although tainted by sin. We long to serve you, O Lord, and take all that you give us here and offer it up to you so that you may use it according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.